Hey, it's Caleb Williams here. I first and foremost want to thank you so much for watching our channel, for watching this video. And I want to introduce this next piece of content. It's not usual that I reshare interviews that I've been on. I've, I've had the honor and ability to be on a lot of people's podcasts and talks. And I feel like it would be super repetitive if you heard podcast after podcast after podcast. Um, but this interview that I got to do um, with my good friend Cody and the FI show, we'll make sure to link their channel, their podcast, and what they're doing uh, in, in the world down below. It was a ton of fun. And also, um, it was just, I got asked questions that I've never been asked before when it comes to life insurance. These are people that are like interested in learning more, but like they asked hard questions that probably a lot of you um, may, may have had questions like this or may want to hear. And so the full episode is down below. You can watch it. And I just want to give a, just a shout out to Cody, my good friend, uh, for his amazing show, his amazing ability to uh, ask good questions. And without further ado, please watch below and let me know what your biggest takeaway was. I would love to uh, read your thoughts in the comments. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. As you're you know, learning from all these colleagues, these people, real life experience rather than just financial planners giving you the script and letting you kind of roll with it. I'm gonna now ask a question. You were the question asker back in, you know, when you were 19 years old working at this financial institution, but what is the wealth equation? I know that's something you mentioned really early on in your book and I thought it was really fascinating kind of the way you frame wealth and how yep. we're thinking about it wrong. <laughs> I, so it's, I love this question because I wrote the and asset, which that, that question comes from in 2018. Okay, so I'm going to give you two answers because I've learned a lot since writing that book. So the wealth equation in that book is E equals MC squared. Now I know I know nothing about the original equation that you know Einstein uh, made up, but what the wealth equation for me was like, okay, efficiency will be when your money is maximizing compound growth, which is essentially the long-term value of what your money could be worth in the future, and the ability to control. And what I've learned, and and just now that I'm sharing this with you, just watch other people as they talk. A lot of people in the financial industry are telling you that you can either have one or the other. You can compound your money for the long term, but you usually give up control or control your money. But what are you giving up when you control your money? You're usually giving up the ability to compound your money like in a Roth IRA. And so one of the epiphanies that I had in just this journey was like, man, what if we could maximize not just compounding or control, but what if we could have both? And that's the that was the original definition of like E equals MC squared as efficiency. The, the way I explain efficiency now is I just share the definition where it's getting your desired result by minimizing all the unnecessary energy, time, effort and, and what I like to call friction. And so you are efficient if you know where you want to go and you get there the fastest. And a lot of people when it comes to their financial life are like, I want to be I want to be in Austin, Texas, so I'm going to walk there. Whereas airplanes get me to Austin, Texas faster. We, the destination's the same. One way is just way faster than the other. So I actually had the opportunity yesterday to speak to my old high school and speaking to younger people about personal finance. There's just some things it's a little harder to get through to. So somebody who took on to finances so early, I think this question will be even more relevant. But when people, another thing people think they're giving up kind of when they decide, okay, yeah, I'm going to have wealth is they think they're going to have to accept this kind of delayed gratification. They're going to have to give up living now. So I guess, how did you think about that when you started learning about money? Did you did you get nervous? Like, oh, that means I'm going to have to kind of live in my mom's basement and never go do anything. 
Or did you, you know, did you kind of come around to that idea in a positive way and think, no, I'm just going to focus on the things that are important or just kind of how'd your mind go with that? Yeah. So my default is to be a saver and not spend any money. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question because I, I graduated college with more money than I, you know, started with and I paid for it myself. Um, cause I just hate spending money. So my default is being a saver and I, I love like getting our money to work for us. One of the, one of the, the whole concepts that we teach though, is I don't lo- love this concept of just putting your money away and waiting for 45 years or 30 years. I just, when you look at the economy, when you look at just what are better ways to create wealth, I think understanding value creation and leverage are, are the keys. And I see, I, I see a lot of people in the way that they handle their mo- their money, not leveraging it properly. And so I'm not a huge fan of locking up your money uh, because I want to be a control freak when it comes to money. Uh, but at the same time, I think one of the biggest problems, and it goes back to the richest man in Babylon, is that concept of the discipline of paying yourself first and getting your money to continue to work for you. And so um, I do think the reason why a lot of people are broke and not getting success is how they think. And a lot of times we're self-sabotaging our ability to get results because of our own money decisions and, and, and bad habits. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I definitely think if you're not going to master thyself, you can learn all the great strategies in the world and you're just not going to be able to stick with it because there is going to be a lot of friction that gets in the way of getting to your result. I could not agree more. And I think this is a perfect transition into three types of people that you talk about. Another book question, because I did like the book a lot and I took a lot of notes. Debtors, savers, and maximizers. Could you please describe those three cohorts to the audience? Yes. I <laughs> I, I, I love this interview, by the way. Thank you for these questions. Um, so there's the, it really comes back to this concept of every decision we make has consequences. So opportunity cost essentially says, if you're listening to me right now, you're not able to listen to all the other amazing interviews out there. If you spend a dollar on a tax or a coffee or on my book or whatever, that dollar's never able to earn for you ever again. So a lot of times there's this concept of pay cash for everything. Well, I'm going to say something that some, some people might freak out. When you pay cash for something, you're financing. You're not paying interest but you're disrespecting the value of what your dollars could be earning. And so you're losing the ability to earn interest. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So a lot of people, and I'll, I'll call out Dave Ramsey, he looks at people that you know are, are the ones that get the car loan. And, and he's like, you are an idiot because you're paying interest to buy a car. And, and we make it all about depreciating assets versus like assets. And all I'm saying is there's a cost to buying that car. But if I pay $10,000 of cash for that car, that's going to cost me over $100,000 over my lifetime because I literally disrespected what that $10,000 could be worth in the future. And, and as a controller, I probably could make even more because I know how to flip that money. So the third type of person, so the first person is the, the debtor. The second person is the saver, which what does Grant Cardone say? Savers are losers or Robert Kiyosaki. Um, the, the third type of person it understands this concept, which I call controlled compounding. They understand that there's a cost to everything that they do, and they're, they're going to most effectively and efficiently utilize capital to buy, hopefully, an asset while still maximizing the growth of their money. Now, there's, two, there's really two ways to do this, so I'll, I'll share this in a way. Like, If your money's in a Roth IRA and you're confident of the growth long term, instead of taking your money out and disrespecting what that money could be worth, potentially getting a loan from a credit union or a bank, yes, there's some interest that you're paying but it's allowing you your money to grow. That is, that is a, a way to use this strategy. I'm a big fan of, of using life insurance and I do the same type of thing is I save money, 
I don't use it as an investment, but I, I leverage that asset to go invest in other assets and I effectively have my money do more than one thing for me. So I'm going to rewind to Austin, Texas, Uber ride with you, Caleb. And we were just talking finance, talking about, you know, this and that. And you mentioned something that you had kind of figured out about the big banks, the big corporations, just things that everyday investors don't know about. And you, you realize this when you were 19 years old, just kind of the way they handle their books and handle their finances to get the maximum leverage. And I want to use this as a lead up into the end asset. And, you know, what don't we know and why are, why don't we know this stuff? There's two things. A lot of times we look at like, and I'll usually ask this question, what's the most profitable business in the world? And, and people usually will be like, I don't know, Amazon, whatnot. And I'll be like, banking. Because what are banks? They're, they're literally institutions that mark up our money. I mean, they, that's why they give us lollipops, right? Because we're the ultimate suckers to be in this, <laughs> this industry. And so um, what's interesting is we can make fun of banks and we can say, oh, banks are evil. But what if we just applied the principles that banks are using and model that in for, for ourselves. And so here are a couple principles that banks use. And if you're listening to this, I would really encourage you to take notes because think about how you can model this in your own life. So the first principle of banks is they're institutions that just get as much money to flow to them. You ever wonder why they like sometimes um, make it free if you create a direct deposit? It's because you're literally depositing on a journey. They're seeing your money before you are. And so like banks understand that they want money to flow to them. They also understand the power of leverage. Cody, if, if I was the bank and you deposited $100 with me and I gave you a very generous 1%, you, you would have a dollar. I control your 100 for $1. And then I, and I give the money to Justin and charge him 4%. I make $4 on your 100 a lot of people would say, oh, I made 3%. I actually made 300% with your money. So they understand leverage and, and there are institutions that can legally leverage money uh, because they can use what's called velocity and just do that multiple times. Um, but then they also minimize their risk by saying, Justin, you're going to have to put up your house or your, or your firstborn or your car <laughs> as collateral. If you don't pay me, I'm going to like, I'm going to take back, you know, I'm going to take back some value. And so I'm using Cody's money, making a 300% rate of return. And I'm making Justin take the risk because if he doesn't pay me back, I'm taking his house. So it's like, wow. Like, so they're, they're using so many, like they're, they're institutions that are paying themselves. They're looking for opportunities. They're getting money in motion. And it's like, that's brilliant. And they're really not taking on a ton of risk. Now where they're, they are taking on risk is they're leveraging massive amounts of money. And so it really comes down to a cash flow play if they stop. So I'm not saying that the banking institutions are, are flawless. I'm saying they, it's fascinating. And I just started asking questions. I'm like, I'm at a small community bank. There's 24 people employed. We don't sell any products. What, like, how does this work? And it, it was like, it's so interesting when you think about that. So, so think about anytime you see like football stadiums, like look at who owns or sponsoring those stadiums and, and start connecting the dots. What was interesting is a lot of those institutions um, have what their, their tier one assets in, in special type of life insurance. So like for instance, Wells Fargo, Chase Bank, US Bank, all have over $19 billion. I want that to sink in, over $19 billion of some of their safest assets in what's called bank-owned life insurance. And they do that um, because there's, there's just a lot of advantages, but they use it as an asset that they leverage against. But there's a lot of reasons to keep key employees, to have tax benefits. And so banks do that. 
a lot of corporations have some of their safest assets there and they don't use it as an investment. They just use it as a storehouse place for money. And as I was learning and going through this journey, I started like looking at that and, and I always thought that life insurance was a horrible place to put your money. And through this journey, I realized life insurance is a terrible investment. It's a horrible place to invest your money. Never invest your money in life insurance, but it can be a phenomenal place to storehouse your money because of the long-term benefits and also the leverageability. And so that was kind of got me on this journey of like, oh, maybe, maybe life insurance could play a role in part of my portfolio. And that sounds like that's what led you down this road of, you know, the and asset. So I think we're now at a good place where we can kind of start unwrapping what you mean when you say the and asset and why is it you would want to park all this money into life insurance? Well, what I discovered when, when life insurance is, is fully funded or overfunded in such a way where you're minimizing the insurance and you're maximizing the cash, you're actually, it, it looks totally different uh, than traditional life insurance. And you're actually ironically minimizing the commissions that the people get. So that's why you don't hear a ton about it. But when you design that, um, it's in a very effective place to, to park some of your money, have it grow the rest of your life. Um, based on tax code 7702A, um, your money can grow without paying taxes. It can be utilized without paying taxes and it gets passed on to the next generation tax-free. And so uh, simply put, if if funded properly, it can be a phenomenal place to grow your money tax-free and also use it to reinvest uh, tax-advantaged. And that's what kind of got me on this journey. And then I really became a believer when I had the epiphany of like, remember early on the compounding and control and this this like dilemma that I had between should I compound my money or should I control it? But I felt like I either had to choose one or the other. And I realized like, oh, life insurance is not competing as an investment, but it can be an amazing place that so I can most efficiently compound my money for the future and still be able to utilize it in other other capacities. And so um, from that, from since I've wrote, written the book, I've, I've really been invested a lot in the retirement planning world. And I realized that a lot of the retirement planners, including Ernst & Young, just came out uh, recently with a study where they're saying life insurance can enhance other stock market assets or annuities or pensions because of how it works. And so there's a lot of people coming, coming around this concept of life insurance has other benefits, not just the internal benefits. And I think I just learned that um, early on and it, it just became really evident to me that it could enhance someone's ability to show up, save more and, and you know, have their money protected at the same time. And let's get super tactical. So yep. a phrase you mentioned was overfunding your life insurance. What does that mean? Does it mean yep. you have a, you know, your, your life insurance is $25 a month and you're just putting five grand in it? Or, you know, how, how do you even facilitate that? If you buy term insurance, you're essentially renting protection for a certain amount of years and um, less than 2% of term pays out. And so obviously the insurance company um, makes their money because majority of people that do term insurance are not going to die. And so they're taking those premiums and investing. And, and that's, that's pretty simple. When you look at the world of permanent life insurance, what people like Dave Ramsey will say is like, it's a, it's a total ripoff because they steal your money and your death benefit stays level and it's, and it's not a very good investment. And I would agree with them because if, if structured not optimally, it's really, it, it's really a crappy place to put your money. What, what I've discovered is there are different riders that you can put on insurance that essentially allow you to put a lot more money in and actually minimize the, the death benefit. And we're minimizing the death benefit up into what's called the MEC limit. And the MEC stands for Modified Endowment Contract. 
And the reason why we get that all the way up to that limit is that's what makes life insurance tax-free. So you, if you overfund it or fund it over the MEC limit, now you don't have the tax-free benefit of life insurance, and it kind of defeats a lot of the benefits of why people um, put their money. And so there's, a, there's really an art and a science in using special riders to the whole goal is to put as much money in and get the least amount of insurance as possible because the insurance is really the drag to your cash. And so um, the whole paradigm shift is this. A lot of people, when they think of life insurance, they see it as an expense and they want to pay as little bit of money as possible to get the most amount of coverage, which is great. If that's all you care about, go the term insurance route. The paradigm shift is like, if you're going to use it as a savings vehicle, the most efficient way is to put as much money in for the least amount of insurance. And as a result, you're getting your cash to have a lot more living benefits. And the death benefit is one of those things that will be an asset long-term, but early on, it's not really that big of an advantage. And so there's there really is an art to that. And it really goes down into PUA riders, term riders, and, and blending that properly where you do that. And, and here's the thing, and I'll share with your audience. When you properly overfund it, instead of having zero cash in the first year, you should have 80 plus percent in some cases, over 90% of cash value in the first year. It should break even in the first five or six years. And those are two really big things that should happen. And when you structure it properly, you're cutting the commission in one-tenth or one-twelfth of what a traditional policy would be. And so that is, if you're going to work with someone, do you have more than 80% cash value in the first year? When does it break even? That will give you kind of a understanding. Is, is this properly funded or is it and not optimally funded. So you just mentioned these two scenarios, you know, buy term and invest the difference and then invest in a whole life or at least a properly funded whole life policy. When you're going to set this up, like, is there certain companies that are better than yeah. others? Are there some that like, there's no way that you can do this strategy. Like if you buy from this company, you're just screwed. You should, you know, cancel your policy or try to figure a way out. Yeah. Just how do you, how do you go about like your first steps setting this thing up? Yeah. So I'll be general here, but when it comes to insurance companies, there's two types of insurance companies. There's stock companies, and then there's mutual companies. Stock companies are companies that Warren Buffett owns, and um, are you can trade their stock on the stock exchange. And so one of the questions that you can ask is, what who benefits when these companies are profitable? The shareholders. Well, the shareholders are Warren Buffett and other people that have the stocks. Um, mutual companies uh, are a lot smaller. Uh, meaning like there are fewer of mutual companies than there are stock companies. And the biggest difference is the profitability. The profit gets passed on to the shareholders, but the shareholders are the policyholders themselves, the people that are holding these insurance contracts. And so um, the biggest difference is the, the, the extra profit of insurance companies, where do they go? And so when we're setting these policies up, and if I'm working with an entrepreneur uh, and they want this, we're usually looking at a mutual company, so Mass Mutual, New York Life, um, Penn, Penn Mutual is a great company. One America. There's there's some there's some really good companies out there, and and you want to make sure that you're working with a mutual company that has your best interest in mind. But the more more important than that is it all we're all we're really trying to do is we're trying to maximize a contract, and the contract is where you're maximizing the cash benefits, and and that's really where the the uh, expertise is in. So it's like picking the right company is one thing maximizing the contract is another. And when we're looking at these maximizing contracts, we're looking for two things. We're looking for flexibility. And the flexibility really comes by getting the, the base insurance premium as small as possible and allowing you to overfund with different riders that are flexible as much as possible. So that's the first thing. 
Um, and then the other thing is just the cash performance. The other thing that I think your audience will be would ask is what is the rates of return of these policies? And typically, um, across the board, we'll see uh, internal rate of return. And what internal rate of return means is they're including the costs of the insurance. They're including all the other commissions and fees that are tied to this. And you're essentially looking at the actual growth value. And so if you look out over 20, 30 years, you're looking at this account is going to earn anywhere from three and a half to like four and a half percent growth. Now, you might be thinking, that's horrible. It's a terrible price to put your money. Well, let me ask you this, Cody. What savings accounts do you know of right now that can get you three and a half to four and a half percent and keep your money liquid that you can control? Not any reputable, super safe ones that come to mind. <laughs> right. So that's why the biggest difference is this is not an investment. Because if I was saying, this is a better than your investments, this is better than the ETFs or your, your business, I would be an idiot. <laughs> Where I see it as a place to storehouse your money, because not only are you getting three and a half to four and a half percent actual growth rate, but you're now getting a permanent death benefit, which is valuable. You're getting creditor protection. You're getting other benefits that, you know, God forbid, if something happens to you, like health wise, you can tap into the death benefit prematurely. Um, but then you also, your money's growing tax free. So if we compare to a savings account or any other like asset, you have to factor in taxes. Well, in a savings account, you have to pay ordinary income tax on your interest. I know it's not that big of a deal because <laughs> we don't earn any interest. But if we were comparing to a savings account, you would now have to earn four and a half to five and a half percent just to keep up with the life insurance because one is tax free and one is not. And then when you start looking at fees and then when you include buy term and invest a difference, when you buy term with the opportunity cost of buying term is that money's never able to compound for you again. So when we do that, we're looking at a properly structured life insurance should get six and a half to seven and a half percent. And again, this is not an investment. This is simply a better place to storehouse your money. And so that is that that needs to be understood, because if it's not, then people are like, I don't get it. Why would I do that? Um, it's simply a place to put your money and there and and have the long-term growth, which is okay, but more importantly, having the control with still getting a better rate of return than like a savings account. The and asset. So let's say you have $500,000 sitting in one of these accounts and you want to go you know, buy property, invest in a company, something where you're kind of closer to the control, where your rate of return is probably yep. going to be higher than that 35 to 4.5% in that quote-unquote savings account vehicle. Um, how do you go and tactically do that? Like, what is the process to get that money out and start working for you in different ways? Yeah. So with every insurance company that we use, you can actually um, borrow against the general fund and and you pay the insurance company some interest rate. So um, the interest rate could could be anywhere from like 4% to 8% based on what, what that is. Now, I know savvy people are saying, okay, you're earning 3.5% and it's costing you 4.5%. That doesn't make a ton of sense. And you're right if life insurance only benefit is a rate of return. There's no other benefits to life insurance, then it doesn't make a ton of sense other than the, the continuous growth of the policy. But but I assure you, if you're going to borrow at 4.5%, your policy has to be like growing and being worth more than what you're paying for other people's money. The other principle is if you're going to pay 4% or 5% for your money, the, whatever activity you do needs to be greater than what we call the control cost. So an example of this is if I... Um, you borrow the insurance company's money at 5% and I go invest in a 
two percent CD, I'm paying five percent to earn two. That's a negative sixty percent rate of return on my money. Or if I pay five percent to go earn five percent, that's really not a, a good use of money. But if I pay five percent and earn twelve percent, that's a hundred and forty percent rate of return on my money. Why? Because I'm acting like the bank. I'm not using my own money. I'm controlling someone's money using a percentage. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.